The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 47. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing, okay, now follow this, folks, the first three episodes of the second season of Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Today we're discussing the first episode and a half of the second season of Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Right. So the the, the fans generally call it the Bajoran coup arc, uh, which is just three episodes long. Um, and we've split this into two episodes of Secrets of Star Trek. So. And this was the first time that Star Trek had done a three-parter. Yes, yes. And we'll get we'll get more into that in a bit. Um, but of and course, now that we've completely confused you with all the numbers <laughs> involved in these episodes. Who are these guys? Yeah, who are these guys who are talking at me? Uh, joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And uh, to remind folks, remember to like Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook. Retweet the show on Twitter. Leave us comments uh, to to comment on the show. Subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in your favorite podcast app or YouTube. Hit the bell on YouTube to make sure you get notifications when we post there. And, of course, share the podcast with all your Trekkie friends and even the Trekkers, too. Help us grow the community and uh, reach more listeners. So uh, we're talking about the uh, second season of Deep Space Nine. We've previously talked about the season, the series premiere of the first season. Now we're in the second season. It's September 26, 1993 is when this broadcast for the first time. And uh, we've got the first three-parter in Star Trek history. Well, one thing one thing that was kind of interesting to me was this didn't start out from a cliffhanger from the end of the season. Yes. Right. That season one was a closed off season. Once season one ended, there was nothing. There's no cliffhanger. Right. Like a lot of like later seasons have. And of course, DS9 or uh, TNG used quite quite regularly as even well. voyager did too yeah yeah mm-hmm. well they had guaranteed renewals for the most part and so right. they could do that more safely right i mean you, you could almost say that like the way that they've done discovery with, with a continuous storyline it's just the way a lot of t- like a lot of streaming shows are done nowadays but back then this was a, a relatively novel approach not everyone in in the star trek production agreed with it some uh, there was a, some folks felt like they were padding it to reach three episodes that uh, maybe it should have just been two parts. Uh, so they, they eventually de- decided to make it three episodes and kind of grow it out. And, and it didn't fe- it did not feel padded to me. No, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, we, we've watched some Doctor Who episodes that have been very obviously padded to make up a two parter. And this was I, I this was probably the quickest three episodes I have watched in a long time where it's just, it was constantly moving. It was constantly, there was constantly stuff going. They're constantly moving the plot along. There wasn't a lot of filler at all, in my opinion. Yes, this is true. And in fact, you know, the, the first part starts to set things up, but it almost stands alone a little bit. The the, the first episode is called the homecoming and it surrounds the story of. It's about a big football game. (laughs) Yes, the homecoming game. Cisco is switched from baseball to football, and so (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) So we have this this uh, Bajoran uh, resistance hero, Lee Nallis, that everyone thought was dead. He turns up alive in a Cardassian prisoner camp, and and is rescued. And that's really the the theme of that first episode. The second and third episode, while Neil Lee Nallis, I'm going to make that mistake uh, several times, is is a is a part of those episodes it, this, he's this, not the focus he's in not the, the same focus way. yeah so there's this this really two different things and it becomes very much more as as my wife put it when she watched this with me that there's a lot more politics in this and of course ds9 had a lot more politics than the rest of star trek anyway uh, although later tng brought in some klingon politics but this but 
but DS9 really took it to the to the next level. And and I'm glad they did that in this because they've been talking the whole first season about how the Bajoran provisional government is shaky. And but we've never seen evidence of it being shaky until now. And so in in essence in the first episode Lee Nollis is the focus, but they also begin building awareness of this Bajoran nativist group called the Circle that is going to attempt a coup in the next two parts. And and then Lee Nollis at the end becomes key to resolving that plot line. Uh, so he kind of fades a little bit, but this is his, you know, focus episode. Uh, and then and then the Circle will come to prominence and challenge the provisional government. Well, and this is one of the things that makes DS9 perhaps my favorite series, is that there's a world building going on that, you know, we don't just have, okay, the Bajorans are now free and everything's okay and now we're going to have adventures. That there's there's highs and lows, there's problems in the background, even some most of the time, not even necessarily in the foreground like it is here, but there's a background and the, you see over time the Bajorans progress toward, you know, from freedom, uh, you know, new freedom, to a stable society and a stable government. And then we get the Dominion War, and then we see development and progress and things change, and there's consequences that bear out over arcs of episodes. I mean, we talk about this as the first three-parter, but this whole series, as we've said before, feels like more like a more modern series where there's a, a, a long arc of the story that we get. And, and this is the really the... The first season doesn't play that way as much, but this is where it really starts to feel like that. The rest yeah. of the no, the, the first season has those horrible standalone episodes, like the Dalrog episode with the storyteller, and Miles O'Brien has to be really pretentious. Oh, and the 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 uh, run along home. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> third <laughs> shop. I cannot wait till we till we discuss that one. Uh, so. So let's t- count three more. <laughs> so let's talk about. So we have a great guest cast in this one. We have some really uh, g- yeah, great actors. That, that purple-haired Boslik freighter captain. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she that, appears in. She actually comes back in several more episodes later on. She does. She does well. Although, so, uh, so she's she's the character who starts the plot rolling because we've got Quark in his bar. He's it, Odo detains him. Uh, uh, with just some business quark says we're going to be friends from now on which they play with later in this episode and this arc uh but then he's really anxious to get up to the hollow suites where he's supposed to meet this boslik freighter captain who gives him an earring a that she does not a bajoran yeah. earring that she does not know the significance of and since she can't take it to bajor this trip she gives it to him and that's what starts the plot rolling, because it turns out this is instantly recognizable to a Bajoran as the earring of Lee Nollis, their greatest hero from the Cardassian resistance. So that that raises a question for me is are Bajoran earrings because they all every all Bajorans have, uh, have an, uh, an earring. It's very decorative and you, you, you're familiar with it. Are they distinctive and individual? See, that's that's kind of what I think they were getting at. And I think this was the first time they kind of mentioned that, that each earring is a personal crest, if not like a family crest, that there are there are symbols on it that are individual to the person. So that if you see it, it's not just decoration that every Bajoran wears a decorative item. It It's like a tartan tartan for a, a kilt. Yes, it's recognizable. Yeah, I think it's somewhat in the middle of those because it's not just this was an earring from Lee Nollis's clan. This was Lee Nollis's. So I think it's it's I mean, you could say, well, he was just super famous and everyone knew his earring. But the way I took it was it's kind of like that knife they have in an episode of the Klingon knife they have in an episode of Next Generation, where it's like, see, this part of it indicates it's from this family. But this part of it indicates it's from the future from a guy who's only just been conceived. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Like a a family, you know, a family crest or or a person or a person takes a family crest and makes their own personal crest. Yeah. Based on that. So this this moment where we have Odo and Quark uh, kind of uh, it's really an inconsequential discussion that doesn't doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the episode, except there is that moment where. uh, Odo says every once in a while declare. Oh no, uh, Quark says every once in a while declare peace. It confuses the hell out of your enemy. 
which is yeah. uh, Seven, seventy six <laughs> rule of acquisition. Yeah, that's uh, that was weird. And then we have another nice moment where we have Cisco and Jake on the promenade, and we have again this great father son dynamic that I really enjoy. It was so great, and I really loved the interaction between the two of them. It shows how Cisco is a good father. He's setting, he's encouraging Jake in his growth, you know, to start dating, but he's also setting limits. It's like no hollow sweets, <laughs> no going back to quarters. How about sitting on the promenade and watching the spaceships go into the wormhole? <laughs> and 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 I love Jake's response. He says, "I can see you're not ready to have this conversation yet." To his dad, Ben <laughs> Cisco just he's just stunned. It's like, "What? I'm not ready to have this? Wait, 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 wait a minute here." <laughs> he totally turns the tables on his you know, dad. That's, yeah, that's a good one. You know, that's where you know again talk about the beginning where this there's not a lot of filler. This seems like. This is a filler scene just kind of to bring the characters in, but it does set up the plot for later. This does get revisited later. So it because it's a Bajoran girl. Yes. And even when we shift to the next scene where he's talking to Kira, who now has the earring and wants a runabout, he Cisco is still bouncy and happy talking to Kira. And this is what I like Avery Brooks to be. I mean, I know he needs to be dramatic at times. But I like seeing him happy and bouncy and playful. He does that great. And unfortunately, as his character arc progresses, that gets thinner and thinner. I know you, I know you guys are huge fans of Cisco as like your favorite Star Trek captain. I don't really have a favorite Star Trek captain, but it, it, for me, it would not be Avery Brooks because he's so serious so much of the time. If he were like this more of the time, he would he would maybe be my favorite. I think it's because of the arc through the war and that shows how the war wears on him. But then we don't have to get into too much of that. But one of the things I like about this, when Kira shows up, you know, she's very like, you know, business, you know, business. You know, I got to get this very important thing. And he makes her wait a second. Sure. Just a sec, uh, you know, Colonel or Major at this point. He, you know, he finishes his conversation with his son. He doesn't just push him off. And it, it that's a very nice moment. So Kira wants she's she's got the ear, earring. She she the, the it's, it says that Lee Nallis is alive and in a Cardassian camp. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, she notes that she had Dax run a DNA analysis on some cells they found on the back of the earring and it matched Lee Nallis. And so this is 1993. This is an early today. We wouldn't blink about you could do that. But for 1993, that's quite forward thinking. DNA testing was just starting to come in. It was an exhaustive process. And out here in California in the 90s, there was a shift that I don't know, may have influenced the writing of this episode because it's obviously made out here in California. But they actually changed the laws in California in the 90s regarding DNA collection and retention because they had been just throwing away criminal evidence that they right. didn't realize would have DNA on it. But there is a famous murderer now known as the Golden State Killer who they had some DNA from and there was a lobbying movement to start retaining that DNA. And so in case he could be caught in the future and recently he was caught when a family member put their DNA in an online database That's and it right. nailed the Golden State Killer. We now know who he is. So, But this is was something that was kind of bubbling in California in the 90s was all this, how can we use DNA stuff? And so I was very forward thinking of them to include that in this episode. So let's talk a bit, a bit about the state of Bajor at the start of the second season. So at the end of the first season, Kai Opaka, who is the head of the, the uh, Bajoran religion, their pope, essentially, she's gone. Yep. Mm -hmm. The provisional and she was very pro Federation, pro Cisco. Uh, the provisional government is, as according to Kira, made up of political opportunists. This is a government that formed in the wake of the Cardassians leaving to kind of set up a new government, sort of what happened in the United States at the end of the uh, the War of Independence. And we had uh, a, the Articles of Confederation and the and Continental Congress, and then they set up a permanent government. Well, the Articles of Confederation was meant to be that, but it didn't work. Of course, yes. And then the planet's population is divided. There's a lot of factionalism. There's some rioting. Well, yeah, we're told there are religious riots throughout the Southern Islands since the loss of the Kai. So, wow. Right, right. And which means the Vedic Assembly, which is essentially like their bishops, yeah. have to elect a new Kai. 
And um, they're taking a here, huge long time. The Kyopaka hasn't been here for ages. What's the holdup, guys? You got super long right. conclaves? <laughs> exactly. I mean, which is because right out of Catholic history, we had similar circumstances where it would they would go for years without electing a be, pope. And the cardinals would be sitting there arguing and fighting, and, and they had the political intrigue and all this kind of stuff, just uh, like we see on Bajor. And that's actually how we got the conclave, because the bishops were take the cardinals were taking too long to elect a new pope. And so they were locked in by the populace and given a bread and water diet until they did their job. Which is the the meaning of the word conclave, yeah, right? To, with to lock with a key. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so uh, Bajoran said, just take a lesson from us. Uh, lock them in a room until they come out with one. Although, as long as it's not Kai Wynn, uh, just don't elect her. She, she uh, did okay <laughs> in the end. She was she was sharp elbowed, but she came out okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk more about Kai Wynn throughout these three episodes, that's for sure. Um, and then Kira believes that Lee, Lee Nallis' return could fix all of these problems as the legendary leader who returns to save them. Um, he's like essentially a Bajoran version of George Washington? Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. At least in the popular consensus. So Kira wants to take this Starfleet runabout and engage in an action that could, could be considered an act of war with Cardassia, which which I would say would com- create a diplomatic incident between Cardassia and the Federation because she's in a Starfleet ship. But they address that because, yeah, Cisco says to he takes counsel from Dax first and, and her response is, well, what are they going to say? Because they've said they've released all of their prisoners. So right. they're not going to complain about, wait, you you liberated a prisoner that we said didn't exist. But only if she succeeds, only if, yeah. if they get they get if they get destroyed or stopped beforehand. Yeah. So there is still some risk there. Um, so we have uh, then we have the circle who's uh, apparently taking spray paint because spray paint exists in Bajor in the 24th century. Yeah. And spray painting parts of the station with their symbol. They are a Bajoran extremist who oppose all non-Bajorans and want everyone else expelled from the system, which, again, is a, is a nice touch because it's sort of realistic given their experience with Cardassians. Well, and right? even Kira did not want, and they allude to this uh, later on, but at the beginning of the series, Kira did not want the Federation there. She wanted Bajor to stand on its own. And so that's what the Circle wants, too. And they even play on the fact that Kara has not... Uh, Kira has not been a fan of the Federation, but she's gained enough respect for it now that she's not going along with these new terrorist plans. Incidentally, so also the circle, once they get going, they brand Quark on the forehead as as a symbol of whatever. And this was a source of significant behind the scenes consternation because from the beginning, there had been concerns that uh, that Deep Space Nine was plagiarizing Babylon 5 because Joe Straczynski had gone before Deep Space Nine had gone to the same production company and pitched Deep Space Nine. And then you have this Deep Space Nine series show up with us. It's set on a space station. It's led by a commander, not a captain. It's got a wormhole right next to it that lets you to travel to distant lands, all these similarities. And then in this ep- and, and then in the first season of Babylon 5, we have an Earth nativist group that then brands the bald Dolin on the forehead. And here we have a Bajoran nativist group branding the bald quark on the forehead. And so there was there was a lot of controversy about that, although it seems from the production schedule. Uh, and Straczynski has said that um, he thinks that the creators of the show were not aware of Babylon 5, but the network executives may have influenced them in this direction. Kind of done the, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you do a Star Trek yeah. series set on a space station? That'd be <laughs> with great. A, with a commander in a wormhole. And then based on the production schedule of the two seasons that were kind of airing contemporaneously, it looks like they had the idea for the circle and the branding independently, but it's fed into the narrative of what's going on here. And then, of course, both series ending up end up being about giant space wars where empires rise and fall. Well, and in fact, this story was pitched by Jerry Taylor, who had written several Next Gen episodes to the to the producers of Next Gen. But they felt it would be better suit Deep Space Nine. So the original story focused on a Bajoran woman who's picked up by the Enterprise 
on a mission to rescue a leader of the Bajoran resistance. Um, then she would discover that the leader didn't want to be a leader anymore and had become fed up with leading and so on and so forth. And now we saw how it got changed. And so it, it, when it became Deep Space Nine, it was altered from a reluctant hero to a mistaken one based upon the 1962 John Ford movie, who, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is an interesting uh, parallel. Right. So so uh, just to spell that out for people who don't know that movie, it turns out Lee Nollis, the facts of what happened to him have been blown all out of proportion. He like defended himself against a guy who was sort of semi-helpless anyway, and it got transformed into this, he's the greatest guy ever military leader when in fact he was not yeah so he's the mistaken hero who feels unworthy of the sacrifices of others you know who that make them on his behalf or of the image that they hold for him i mean so there's there's this interesting story that develops behind him kira and o'brien the cisco sends o'brien with her they go to this bajor this cardassian prisoner camp to rescue them Jimmy, I can't hear you. Sorry. Get through the force field or surrounding the prisoner war camp. They do this routine where Kira is playing a prostitute and O'Brien is playing her pimp. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow. Well, this this same scenario plays out several times throughout Deep Space Nine's history, especially with Gul Dukat and their some of the the uh, time travel episodes yeah. where they go back in time Bajoran to and comfort women and stuff. Yeah, so they 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 yeah, but it's it's definitely a a product of its of its time. So the it turns out that Lee Nollis wasn't the one who had arranged to get his earring out, but one of the other prisoners. And they the runabout can only beam people in in pairs. Right. So they have to they have to go down on the surface and then they have to rescue all of them. And four of them stay behind to give them a head start. And I'm sitting there going, so why don't you just beam them back up in pairs? Like, once you get going? Well, I, I think they, they've, they there's the force field, which they can't beam through. Well, they weren't in the force field anymore. Oh, okay. They had gotten outside the outside the, the wires. Well, so but it can, as we see in later episode here, it can beam only beam two people until they need to beam six. <laughs> exactly. I was going to bring that up in the in the siege. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of kind of like an alien. The Nostromo has a life raft that won't take everybody. So right. Which, <laughs> that's yeah. planning. Sounds like ahead. poor planning. Yeah. <laughs> I did think, though, it was a very dramatic moment where, you know, and you could ration you could headcanon this as well. They couldn't because they had to really race home quick in order to evade security that was now going to be on them. So they couldn't be beaming people up in that situation. But. You know, they they have this very dramatic moment, which is very character revealing, where Kira's goal is to get Lee Nihilus back at all costs. And she wants to save other people if she can. And she's waiting for other people to come to the shuttle. And O'Brien tells her, if we're going to go, it has to be now or we will never leave. And she says, go. And she leaves people on the planet as prisoners of war in order to achieve her overarching goal of saving Lee Nihilus. And that's a very dramatic moment. It's very character revealing. I thought it was very effective. And and of course, the it turns out okay for those guys left behind yeah, because they all get released. Right when they get back, Ducat is on the uh, on the phone, so to speak, and apologizing about the quote unquote air quotes. I'm making air quotes. Overlooked prisoners. Yeah, boy, I hate that when I <laughs> that, hate that when the bureaucracy misses a whole bunch of prisoners of war that they weren't supposed to have, and they swore they'd already gotten rid of. I hate when that happens. And, and they've been keeping <laughs> them alive this whole time in this prison camp. Now, which raises a question that they don't address, which is who were these people and why were they keeping them? Why didn't they just release them? I mean, I could understand keeping Lee Nalas if he's the great war hero. Were these all great war heroes? If they were, why don't they talk about that? It would make sense because if they were all in the same prison camp, if they release those guys, they'll go back and go. The but they Kardashians still have Lee Nalas. Oh well, you could always you could always arrange that problem to be taken care of when you release the others. Yeah, why don't they just kill Lee Nalas if they're? It could be, be like the, the movie The Great Escape, where there was the one camp that everybody who and this this is actual historical aspect of World War Two. There was the one camp that those who were well skilled at escaping would end up in because it was the more difficult camp to escape from, and that could be what this would. I mean, this is kind of headcanon, admittedly, at this point, but. It could be something like that. I, I love that strategy of we, these are this these are the guys who are the most inclined to escape. So let's all put them together and see how that works out. Exactly. <laughs> it worked just great, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, again, let's talk about the, the the guest casting here. So Lee Nollis is played by Richard Bamer, who um, you may know as 
<laughs> you may know him from such movies as yeah. West Side Story, where he played Tony in 1961. We also have Frank Langella playing Minister Jaro SF. The uh, I mean, I always love Frank Langella. He's great in he everything. Uh, you everywhere. may know him from Skeletor. Yeah, he is. He's really good in this. And he is not credited. If you watch the credits, he's not really? credited for playing over all three episodes because he did this as a favor to his daughters who were fans of the show. That's funny. And so, yeah. Oh, interesting. So it, it, I was going to say, you may know Franklin Jella's voice of, of, if you're of a certain age as Skeletor from uh, He-Man. But, he, but he's one of those <laughs> actors. He's one of those actors who just shows up everywhere. I mean, you look at his list and it's just a who's who of stuff that he's involved in. He's a very, you know. Yeah. He's a guy who works. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and so he shows up. And so Lee Nollis is on the station. He's getting all kinds of attention. And the politician shows up and he, he it basically says to him, you can't blame a politician for wanting to talk to the crowd. And he starts he wants to co-opt, you know, Lee's uh, his his fame, his, his every, what everyone loves. So um, so we, we 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 start to get a little foreshadowing of uh, Jaro S's uh, his personality here. I, I, I thought there was an interesting parallel because it is as it becomes clear that Lee Nalas is a reluctant leader and we don't yet know the full story on him that he, his legend is overinflated like crazy but we do get the sense that he's a reluctant leader and there's an interesting parallel there to Cisco who is also very much a reluctant leader that is not comfortable with the role the Bajorans want him to play and Lee Nollis is kind of in that situation too that's true that's true yeah is uh yeah the uh, Cisco doesn't really want to be the emissary Right. And we that actually plays on a later episode, which is a lot, which is really good, where he realizes maybe it's not so bad. So we have this branding of Quark where the circle uh, has uh, attacked him. We have this that wonderful moment where he's paying Rom, you know, one for you and six, <laughs> six for, for me. me. And Rom complains. Yep. And Rom complains and says, oh, you're right. One for you, seven for me. That's much more fair. <laughs> that's much more fair. So Quark gets branded. And there's this moment that's uncomfortable where Quark says, He's going to sue the provisional government, and he's very upset. And Cisco barks at him, not now, Quark. I mean, this poor guy just got branded. That seems a bit <laughs> insensitive toward a victim who's expressing his pain and suffering in a way appropriate to his species. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, anti-Ferenganism in, uh, in Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> well, we saw that at the, the first episode of Voyager where, you know, the poor Ensign Harry Kim is being, you know, oh, being yeah. inconsiderate. <laughs> yes, yes. Who is it specifically at the Academy who told you to watch out for Ferengi? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the one thing I like about this is we don't get a heavy handed morality play about racism and xenophobia. But it does turn up because Jake's date cancels on him and because her father doesn't want his daughter dating a non-Bajoran. We, so we get the story without them having to bang us over the head about yeah. the parallel to, mm -hmm. to American history, that sort of thing. It is, it's nice to have the issue raised and dealt with in a way that we don't have to have endless sermonizing about it. Exactly. It, which even Deep Space Nine does veer into that later on, but at this point, not so much. Right. Mm -hmm. And then um, Kira, when she went off to rescue Linalis, she figured there would be consequences for her actions. And we start to see them now where she is replaced. She's given a reward. Oh, yes. Quote, unquote. She's promoted, but, in, but without a specific posting and is replaced as liaison to the Federation at, on Deep Space Nine by Lee Nallis. Mm -hmm. And in both cases there, we have a phenomenon. I forget the exact Italian phrase for it. In Italian, it's to promote, to remove. In English, it's promotion to oblivion. And and that's what's happening to both of them, because the minister Jaro wants Lee Nallis off Bajor so he can't interfere. He can't become the leader that Kira wants him to be. And so he gets promoted up to Deep Space Nine. The only position that's suitable for him there would be the Bajoran liaison. That means Kira has to leave her position, so she gets promoted to an even greater oblivion. She has no assignment. She gets a desk job somewhere eventually, maybe. Yeah, but that, they don't even give it to her immediately. She spends all this time in a monastery. And uh, they give Leah this title, uh, the Navarch, which is a new title for a Bajoran religious leader which is he's outside the command structure of the Bajoran militia. So he doesn't he doesn't get to give orders to, to people and does. And he's expected to report directly to the prophets. 
We'll see how that works out, uh, the, whether the prophets actually uh, <laughs> Care. accept his reports. Yeah. The interesting is navark is a Greek word yeah. meaning leader leader of ships. And in, in Greek, an admiral is navarkos. Incidentally, Lee Nallis, uh, we kind of skipped over this a little bit, but one aspect of Lee Nallis's reluctance to embrace his new role is he actually stows away on a ship that's going to the Gamma Quadrant and he plans to stay there permanently from what he implies and and he gets caught and the aliens are like we found this stowaway captain cisco what do you want us to do with him and that's really a dramatic move to run away that quickly that dramatically away from your home planet never see anyone ever again it's like he's reimposing exile in a cardassian camp on himself yeah this is when he reveals to cisco that what really happened in his story with how everyone has mistaken him as this great hero and leader. What he did was he accidentally killed this this uh, Cardassian gull uh, in this embarrassing moment. And Cisco keeps his keeps his secret because Cisco knows that Lee is important to solving Bajor's problems. His him him as a symbol, right? And that it's good for the Federation for to have him as a symbol, which is which is is a nice thing for Cisco. It's it, it it's character revealing for him. He's a little minister Jaro himself on the other side. Right. But he basically tells him to suck it up and do what's good for Bajor, which is kind of what Cisco's already doing when he's sucked it up to as in his role as emissary, as whether reluctant or not. And so that's and so minister Jaro is the one who's sort of maneuvers all this and we that's how we end this episode on this sort of cliffhanger of <clears throat> what's going to happen to Kira. And uh, so we start with the next episode, The Circle. Uh, so the first one's The Homecoming. This one is The Circle. And Cisco is now, he opens up, he's, he's upset at having Kira dismissed. And and Jaro is like a typical politician. I think you'd be grateful to me to that we took her. It's common knowledge you don't like her. Um, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, how is this common knowledge? And Cisco basically calls him a windbag to his face. Like literally <laughs> calls him a windbag. <laughs> Which is uh, that's uh, making an enemy of you of, of the of this uh, important politician. I, I, I like he also, you know, makes the point he is really kind of smooth as a politician. He says, well, the Federation doesn't consult us in the promotion of its officers. And that kind of knocks Cisco back on his heels, A, because it's true. And B, because it's implying Kira is getting a promotion and he doesn't know it's to oblivion. So he's like he wants to be supportive of Kira and getting a promotion. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, but as a a commander and his exo, usually the 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 custom would be he'd at least be consulted, and he wasn't. And but that's because of the uniqueness of the situation. You know, that's just the the way it is. And of course, Jaro wants, like you said, wants Lee on DS Nine, where he can be a symbol, but far enough away not to threaten his political power. And then this whole episode, not not a little episode, this whole uh, little uh, beat of the story ends with. Uh, Cisco getting a call from Jake. Yeah. Dad, you should come to the quarters. And, and so earlier I praised DS9 for being forward thinking. Now I've got a minor criticism for being backward thinking because today, if what's happened is the circle has tagged Jake and Cisco, Jake and, and his dad's front door <clears throat> with spray paint. And, and today you wouldn't call dad on the phone and say, you've got to come home and see this. I'm not going to tell you what it is until you get here. Exactly. You would take a picture of it with your phone and text it to your dad and say, look what just happened. Well, where's or the, even just tell him. Or just tell him, yeah. <laughs> Where, where's the camera, though, on the, the uh, communicators? I, I don't remember seeing a camera uh, camera phone <laughs> on the communicators. Well, no, or I'm kidding. There's a sensor that's pointed at the door. I mean, yeah. It's a there's a false drama that they often do in a lot of these shows, not just Deep Space Nine or even just Star Trek, where it's like, you know, you come, you must come to this place right now. What is it? Just come and you'll, see. You'll see when you just get tell here. me what it is. Yeah, yeah, just tell me. You know, so I know. There's no reason not to tell and, me. And there's not on not only on the dramatic level is there no reason not to tell them on the cinematic level. There's no reason not to tell them because you don't have to show them being told. You just have to show someone's talking into their phone. They say, "What is it?" Cut to the person having come to witness it for themselves. Exactly. Right, right. You could save, yeah, save yourself some screen time even. Now, one thing I wish they would have kind of mentioned explicitly in this is you would figure that on station like DS9 that you could only go to someone's quarters, like, say, the commander of the station 
with permission. You know, it's not like anybody could just walk down that corridor just because they happen to go for a walk around the station. You would assume yeah. there's some security there somewhere that like the station crew would have a segregated area that's guarded well it, at the very it, right yeah. you know i mean i guess i think when i was in the air force it's not like i could just walk up to the commander's the wing commander's house they you know if you guards. did that you know there, there would be there would be consequences shall we say yes that's a good point that's a good point so then we come to a, a this scene which is a, a, my favorite scene of uh i think of at least of this episode oh, yeah which is um Every, so Odo, it starts with Odo confronting Kira and being angry at her for sort of just surrendering. Yeah. Meanwhile, she is she is angry packing in her quarters. Yeah, she's oh, yeah. <laughs> angry packing is a good way to put it. <laughs> said, and he tells her, you know, you ignore whatever rules you think are in the way of your personal code. And it's true. Like, she's like, I'm just following the rules. You're, you never follow the rules if you think they're wrong. And then uses reverse psychology on her. You did, you, you, it was, he says to her, um, well, they talk about like how they got along. Well, you did fairly well once I smooth out your rough edges, he says to her. And she's like, my rough edges? I smoothed out your rough edges. <laughs> so this repartee. Yeah. And, and this, this is setting up, I don't think they were aware of it at the time, but this is setting up the romance between Kira and Odo later on. Yes. And then we, we, we have this whole scene with Bashir, Odo, Dax, O'Brien, Quark, and Kira and all this crosstalk, yeah. which is so well done. It is, it is and Marx Brothers. It is like a, a oh, scene yes. out of the Marx Brothers. We have Kira and Odo going at it, and then Jadzia comes in, and now she's talking, and Brashear comes in, and he's talking, then O'Brien, then Quark, and finally Barail comes in, and that's the thing that puts a damper on the whole thing. But until then, it's just this escalating Marx Brothers angry crosstalk scene, which is awesome. So the writer, Peter Allen Fields, said that this scene was inspired by a scene in the 1935 film A Night at the Opera starring the Marx Brothers, and that uh, the director, Corey Allen, shot the scene in one continuous uninterrupted take. Now, when it was edited together, it was intercut with close-ups and reverse angles, but the master shot of the scene was one long take. Which was which is pretty I, I awesome. Wish, I wish they would release that. That would be so awesome yeah. to see the whole episode, that whole scene from one. And maybe maybe it's on the. I don't have like the DVDs. Maybe that's an extra or something. But wouldn't that be cool to see that just from one camera angle, the whole scene playing out? That would have been great because I enjoyed the the back and forth, the myth, the confusion. Bashir, like, wait, what are you talking about? Not you, her, and like the back and forth. Of course, just it coming was so well to set up a party, and you know, yeah. This is just such an awesome scene. You don't get to see that kind of scene very often on Star Trek. Yes, that's true. And then Barail arrives and he's he's a Vedic. And we, we this is our second encounter with Barail. Yeah. And he is such a dead fish. I mean, no wonder he's the wet blanket that brings all this to a screeching halt. He, yeah. I found myself asking, why was Kira ever attracted to him? No wonder they killed him off. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he is the... the so lacking in emotion and passion uh, whenever you are, see are him. Are you sure he wasn't a Vulcan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he invites you to stay at his monastery. And uh, let's just say, apparently Bajoran Vedics aren't celibate. Uh, right. They, uh, obviously not. Uh, that's, that's pretty clearly. But so we, we saw him in the, um, the first season's episode in the hands of the prophets, where um, Orthodox Bajorans object to secular teachings about the wormhole in the station school run by Keiko O'Brien. And that causes tensions between the Bajorans and the Starfleet crew. And that's where we we get Win first time, uh, Vedic Win at the time, and Barail. They represent the different poles of the, the tension. And so so he's showing back up again. Apparently he was attracted to her at, from the first. And so now he hears about her displacement from the role and is going to invite her to come to stay at the monastery, uh, sort of like as a vacation slash retreat. As a retreat, basically. I, I want to bring up one thing here that that the writers have talked about in in retrospect, which is the scene where Kira departs from Ops mm -hmm. is uh, and she she talks to Lee Nollis. And, and we and before we get to that part, she has this long, slow kind of silent saying goodbye to Ops where she walks through it and then Lee Nollis shows up. And, and the writers talked about how like they this. Some of them felt like this was his last consequential moment in these three episodes that, mm. you know, his story arc just sort of goes nowhere from here. I mean, he has some moments well, and, and eventually he heroically a, a dies. Right. Yep. And it's sort of like we don't progress beyond the mistaken hero, reluctant hero bit. The and, and we get to preserve his 
his his his story as a and he becomes a martyr, but that's really it. And he and they kind of just kill him off. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we see see a little bit of fighting, and we'll talk about in the next episodes of Secrets of Star Trek. But uh, we will see, you know, he that he d- kind of takes up the the resistance fighter mantle again. Yes, and and so he kind of comes alive in that. That's something he knows. But he kind of ju- they kind of just uh, he. he one of the problems was is they'd they'd gotten this fairly well known actor. I mean, he wasn't an A lister by any means, but they weren't sure they could get him back for the future. And if you have Lee Nala sticking around, you know he's got to show up. And so, so they realize we got to kill him off. And so they kill him off, and then we, bring, we they bring in Kira's next boyfriend, the fir- who becomes first minister. It was Shakar. Shakar, yeah. And so he ends up sort of becoming the the Lee Nala's character. Uh, later on, you know, he the resistance hero who becomes the leader of Bajor and becomes a he becomes a, a romantic interest for Kira. But so that so but it felt like I mean, so I don't know. Do you guys feel like that the character development just kind of got lost or was there something? Uh, there's so much there's so much going on in the in these episodes. I didn't feel it was a problem. I mean, he continues to be the kind of reluctant, but I'm sucking it up. I'm doing what Bajor needs. And he does do things like when, and we won't talk about this till really till the next episode, but like when the Bajoran officials military get to the station after the Federation's supposed to have evacuated, you know, he's like there, he's, he's doing his, he's doing his job and, and all that stuff. We go, we shift here and there's a shift in time. I mean, there's a clear shift in time where we, we now are at the monastery Kira has been there for some period of time. We're not uh, quite sure. And she is so not suited to it. <laughs> it is, she, they have her making what is she? She's trying, doing what's obviously meditative labor of some sort, but she's trying to build a walkway through a stream mm, or something. Yeah. And she is. She's clearly a type A person <laughs> in a type B location. Uh, put it that well, way. I love that. I love that interaction between her and Beryl because he's like, I just feel useless. And he goes, he says, it might be interesting to explore useless for a while. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and which, that's that's well. It, it's 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 a good spiritual. You know, as as Catholics, you know, we understand the the need for something. You know, we think work is important. As we talked about in a episode of Secrets of Doctor Who a while back, but we also believe that resting is important and that taking time to just well. And for, you know, a well-rounded personality, you need to throw it into reverse every so often. Even even Jesus took time to be alone and pray. Exactly. You know, and and we we, we can't just keep go, 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 go. We have to stop and listen. Yeah. Incidentally, I really liked in this scene where Kira makes a confession to Beryl that she has because he's like suggests she try pottery or something. And <laughs> and she says, I have absolutely no artistic skills, which is hilarious in light of future episodes, because down the line, there's an episode called Accession, where a Bajoran comes out of the wormhole from 200 years in the past, who Cisco thinks may be the real emissary. And and when he and so he's like going to bring everyone back to the way society was 200 years ago. And that means he's going to reintroduce the Bajoran caste system and and or Dajaras as they have returned them to their Dajaras, as they call their castes. And it turns out Kira's caste makes her an artist. <laughs> it's just yes. hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yes, that that did not turn out well either. Yeah. <laughs> also, and then when she has her orb experience in this episode, and it's all over, and she doesn't want to tell Brile what she saw, it's like definitely Woodcrafts. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's that's worth bringing up next. So she, so he takes her to have her first orb experience, and. Orb experience has become a, kind of become a little more uh, mundane a little later. I mean, Cisco has more of them. She has more of them. But at this point, it's still a very new and unique thing. It's basically like getting like going, getting to go to Sister Lucia from Fatima and have her get a vision for just for you. And this would be a very rare thing. Not many people get very, very much like we would consider a mystical experience in the church. You know, this this miraculous vision 
And she says, uh, all my life I've dreamed of this. And then uh, Beryl's last, when she said, I don't know what to do, his last bit of advice, as we, as we mentioned, was be useless, Narice, mm-hmm. <laughs> as he says to her. And then so during the, she has this orb experience and she sees some things that we'll see that sort of flashes of things that will happen later in this episode and then the next episode. But then there's one like where she's suddenly naked and then suddenly Beryl is naked. And I'm like. Man, I think I had weird dreams like that in high school. Yeah, like, no kidding. <laughs> showing up to class naked. Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit it's like the insecurity uh, dreams or something. I don't know what the prophets are saying. That is a foreshadowing for later in the season. And <laughs> yes, but, that's by true. Way, this, is, this, this, is, this is speaking of such dreams. I mean, we have had it, it's normal for people to have that kind of dream. I have very frequently. I, I don't remember the last time it happened, but in my adult life, decades after I left college, I would continue to have dreams where it's like I'm in college, it's the end of the semester, and I suddenly realize there's a class I haven't shown up for, and it's time for the final. And yes. and and this just happens. And it's like, why does why does my subconscious, and I know other people have those too, and it's like, why does our subconsciouses fixate on college in that way? Is it what is it about that time of life? It is so is it so stressful? And what did people dream about before going to college was normal? Did you did you dream it was like it's time for the harvest and you forgot to plant the crops or or what? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was. I actually wouldn't be surprised if farmers to this day have that kind of dream. I'll have to ask some of my parishioners. Uh, and I've had the same kind of dream with at seminary where I'm standing in front of the classroom door. It's the first day of classes. I know I have to go to class. I just don't know what class, what room, what time, any, you know. So <laughs> same kind of thing. I, I've had the high school one uh, where I'm back in high school and I've had I have that anxiety about where I'm supposed to be in the, the the test I'm supposed to be taking and wandering all over. So the vision ends just as uh, Beryl and Kira are about to kiss. And then we are back to the station and we have um, Odo and recruiting Quark, recruiting Quark, deputizing him. Yeah, uh, basically, but basically against his will, it's like you're either going to jail or you're going to work for me. What what do you uh, choose? It's like it's like an episode of The Wire. Yeah, it's, you're either going to be a prisoner <laughs> or a deputy. Well, then I'm a deputy. This is a great <laughs> line out of that. <laughs> yes, and this is we got a key plot point, which is that uh, the circle isn't just a bunch of hooligans, you know, uh, spray painting stuff. That they're actually arming themselves. They're an army. They're they're gonna they're gonna have a coup, and that they're getting their weapons from this these aliens called the Krasari. Which Odo says that doesn't make any sense. They're botanic DNA traders, which is interesting. I'm not sure what that what that is. They but... trade botanic DNA. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up for me. And then uh, <laughs> Quark is the one who found this out. So Quark is actually very important to this. You know, we we get uh, let's see where we go from here. Back to the monastery garden. This is a little bit in ops. We go back to the monastery garden where we had that scene where Kira and Baryla are walking, discussing the aftermath of the uh, the vision, which she's clearly uncomfortable. With the way it turned she out. is not just uncomfortable. She is lying her face off about what happened in the, it's like, man, if I had a intense revelation, I was not comfortable with it. It's like, I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. I would not be lying about what the gods just revealed well, to you, me. You, you could tell that Brile was was ho- apparently it had a vision with her that he was hoping was reciprocated. Yeah. And it was, but she didn't want to tell him. That's so that's kind of uncomfortable a little bit there. Like he went to the station to invite her because he had. A romantic, uh, let's call it romantic vision of Kira. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's a little I, uncomfortable. I can only assume that this is the only thing that ever attracted Kira to Beryl was that this orb thing that she thought it was the will of the gods <laughs> for her to to maybe mate with this guy. Yes, let's let's. Uh, yeah, that's probably that's, all. The all your worst relationships come from uh, uh, orb experience. Uh, don't don't do that. It's just swipe left on the orb. <laughs> and then uh, or right. I don't Ooh. know. I don't know how Tinder works. I'm too old. Don't use it. Just don't go there. <laughs> don't yeah. go there. So they they hear gunfire in the in the in the distance that Kira recognizes as gunfire. Frankly, I can't imagine any Bajoran who doesn't recognize the sound of gunfire. Yeah. Uh, yeah given their exactly. history. At least. Yeah. That age, at least. So. So the coup is now underway. Right. And uh, just at the at this opportune moment, they run into Wynn. Vedic Wynn at this point. Who happens to be there. 
How pleasant to come upon such a flowing exchange of spiritual harmony. She yeah. says. <laughs> is there anything she says that is not a passive aggressive jab? I know like, she is awesome. Every single line. <laughs> I love. I, I. I just. I. Incidentally, she establishes in that dialogue. She establishes a couple of interesting things. One of them is apparently the Vedic assembly has a formality of you need to consult with the whole assembly before you let someone have an orb experience. So that's how rare they are. It's like you got to talk to the College of Cardinals before you let someone into the secret archive or whatever. And then, but then Burial says that's a formality. Yeah, so he says that's never been strictly enforced. So there are exceptions to that. But it's an indicator of just how rare this is. And it explains or sheds light on something we learn way down the line, which is when has never had an orb experience. And so, although, although she, so she implies that she did. She kind of says, well, I always make sure they know first. Mm-hmm. Yes, I consult with the assembly in advance. Yeah. Yeah. As a courtesy. Oh, I took that as if I'm letting someone else have it. But but she she leaves it open ended, though. She doesn't yeah. specifically state that she's never had right. one. And, and but later she's explicit about the fact that she is she feels wronged that the gods have never she's never given her a vision. And so that's in hindsight, that's sheds some light on this episode, obviously unintended by the writers at the time. But she's now jealous of Kira for Kira having had this experience. And then we get the great passive aggressive stinger at the uh, end of the second act break where she's she's uh, inviting Kira to stay at the monastery. It says, feel free to stay as many days as you like. Even a week, if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get comfortable. You ain't staying. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, even before that, she says a worthy endeavor for someone who's led such a life of violence. Yeah. Child. Oh, yeah. She's always calling Kira child, yeah. too. But I, I love just the way the sentence gets more and more nasty as she goes. You feel free to stay as as many. So feel free to stay. That's all she really needed to say. if She was being nice. As many days as you like, and now we're putting a time limit on it, even a week, further limit, <laughs> if necessary, if you further must. limit, yeah. it just keeps turning that screw. Yes, that, that is, a, that is a, a masterful line there. So that's a, and that's a good place for us to finish our stay for this first half of our discussion of the Bajoran coup arc. We've got basically uh, one and a half episodes through. We've talked about the homecoming and half of the circle. Next week, we're going to talk about the second half. But if you have anything you want to say on what we've talked about so far, any comments on it, you could write to us now or wait till we've talked about both. But go to the sqpn.com slash Trek or the SQPN Facebook page and leave us some feedback on the today's uh, today's episode or next week's episode or send us an email to Trek at sqpn.com. You can find links relevant to our discussion on our show notes on sqpn.com. And like we said, we'll be back next time. We'll be discussing the second half of this three episodes. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Glad to be here as always. And thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, be useless. <laughs> <laughs>